The Silly Goose Gang Podcast. So we are back, episode 61 of the Silly Goose Gang podcast, heading on to the one-year anniversary. Um, we're delighted to be joined today, uh, this evening, our time in the afternoon over in the States, by uh, Kedrick Olsen. So Kedrick, thank you very much for joining us today. Hey, thank you for having me here. This is great. I'm really excited to get into this with you guys. We'll um, we'll, we'll get into your Scottish adventure, adventures a little later on, but um, you know, usually when we speak to any of our guests, uh either me or Ali has some experience in the field that uh the guest the guest is in but with you um we are both uh <laughs> inexperienced so um yeah we'd we'd like to speak to you so and and genuinely um super excited um so what what is the your background i suppose first sure uh i've got probably one of the strangest lives i think the more i talk about it the more i talk with people the more i realize wow that was rather unusual growing up you know <laughs> i went to a spiritualist church so seeing trance mediumship or what we call channeling nowadays was a common occurrence for me uh seance every saturday night you know i, I was used to sitting in circle with people talking to the dead uh, my parents, unlike many other people who are exploring pagan paths, were very open to me exploring paganism and trying to figure out what sort of a spiritual path worked for me. They let me get the books that I wanted to get. My mom would bring home after work any of the herbs or incenses or oils or any of you know, the, the wacky magical stuff. Uh, she even introduced me to some people. It was really great. And, you know, as I explored the material, the works... I found that the Norse path is the one that worked the best for me. You know, I studied various different esoteric traditions. I looked at the different paths and what the processes were. But for some reason, the Norse one and runes really just clicked with me. Mm. And so when I was probably 13 years or so ago, you know, 13 years old or so, I found my first set of runes. I was listening to some pretty crazy music coming out of the UK, a band called Sabat. And at the same time, I was really into games designer workshop games, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they were really promoting some of the stuff from Sabat. And I was reading a book called The Way of Weird by Brian Bates uh, about a Christian cleric that came into Anglo-Saxon England back when it was still pagan. And it's somewhat of a true story, somewhat fictionalized. And all of these pieces just fell into place at once. And I said, all right. Let's explore this path of runes. Let's explore this Norse path. And I delved in with both feet. That was my field of study for many years. You know, reading Old Norse, studying Old Norse, translating it for myself, trying to figure out as much of the Old Norse culture, which, by the way, is separate from Viking, uh, mm -hmm. Old Norse culture, as much as I could to really understand what the runes meant to them, what their mysticism was all about, how it applied to their world. But that wasn't good enough. Because if I could understand what it meant to them, how could we use it today? So I really spent quite a bit of time taking what worked for them in the Old Norse time, what their mindset was, and thought about how do we apply it today? And I did a bunch of tests and had test groups and all these kind of things and came up with this formulaic process of here's the Norse process. At 
And here's where it started to diverge. I realized there was a gap in the pagan community that there is a lot of feminine groups out there, a lot of women's groups. There's a lot of women, sacred feminine spirituality. But when it comes to men, it's either put on the back burner, poo-pooed or chastised. And so there weren't a lot of resources for men. And I said, okay, I can be there for the men. And I started to hone some of my Norse stuff into paganism for men to help pagan men grow. At the same time, I'm reaching out to friends that I have that are in the paranormal world, and mm -hmm. I'm thoroughly confused. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm doing seances with them. I'm talking with paranormal investigators, and what I thought was normal, natural part of the world for me, they're lost and struggling with. And I'm like, oh, do you guys need some training in this stuff? And they asked for it. So I put it together. So now I teach classes on seances, uh, help people with paranormal protection. I actually even train ghost hunters to be able to go into locations so that they can protect themselves. And I'm looking back at my whole life going, wow, okay. I don't know how I kind of got wrapped up into this one, but I, I say in, in my bio, you know, I've, I've lived a paranormal life. It's true for me. The paranormal is perfectly normal. And this whole Norse mysticism is just a tool that I weave into the paranormal. I weave into shadow work when I help people dealing with shadows and I weave it into pagan men's spirituality. So yeah, that's kind of me in a nutshell. That's um, quite a, quite an intro. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. There's so many interesting, interesting little points in there. Um, like, I don't even know where you, where do you start with all that? <laughs> um, <laughs> So what 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 was it? So what like as you you know where where were you? Are your parents? Are they, are they Scandinavian or are they from that part of the world? Was, it, was there any connection there? A little bit. I mean, on my mom's side, she said that her ancestry goes back to like some of the first boats that colonized in the U.S. Mm. On my dad's side, though, he was second generation from Germany. Okay. And my mom did a lot of genealogical research, and there's definitely, you know, some uh, Welsh in there. There's uh, Danish, some Scandinavian, definitely some German in there. So it's a lot of Northern European that just, just by happenstance. Yeah, no, just I was just trying to figure out if there was a reason why you were, you know, the, the Norse thing um, clicked with you. Just if there was anything, anything in the background that there was any uh you know a crazy aunt that you know said do this or do that you know the, you know just wonder if there's anything anything like that but no just it's just isn't that amazing how people are just drawn or find something and just go oh this is my thing i like it it's really yep. really exactly. a, yeah it's a really interesting thing um it's, it's, it's very it's very powerful as well when you feel that whatever it is when you realize like this is my you know, calling whatever phrase you want to put alongside it. When you find that thing that just fits, it's very, very powerful. And I think a lot of people don't always recognize it when it comes into their lives. You know, something that you think it's maybe four, five, 10, 15 years later, and you think, actually, you know, I chased the, the you know, because you could have very easily, I would imagine, Kedrick, possibly not with your intro, but, you know, I'm sure there was other people that were interested in those esoteric things that by the time they got to high school were told, no, now you need to do the, you know, the standard maths, English, mm. get your 3.5 GPA, go to university, graduate, go into law or finance, work for 50 hours a week until the age of 30 and then start a family. And, you know, you follow that that path. 
Whereas, you know, you clearly didn't and, and, and are, I would imagine clearly happier for that. Oh, absolutely. And I, I definitely did some university and definitely do the nine to five and all that one. And you're absolutely right. That knocking, that calling approaches everybody. And sometimes we don't listen to that one. We just kind of go along with our life because it makes more sense. You know, we grow up in certain communities that tell us, no, don't do this. That's wrong. That's immoral. That's sinful or whatever. And so they shut it down and they don't listen to that calling. And you know what? That's okay. Because we make our way through lives. We go through university. We do our nine to five. We have our family. But that calling is still there. It never really goes away. And that's one of the important things to know is that if something is pulling you, has that tendency to pull you, it will never force you into it. You always have free will to say, nope, not for me, not at this time. And it will always sit there and go, okay, not a problem. When you're ready, I'm here though. And so when that time comes, when you're finally stable, when you're finally solid, and you're able to tune back in, you feel that calling again, just know that it's still there. There's still something there waiting to go, great, cool. If you're ready to listen, I'm here to teach you. And so it's never really gone and it will never force you or make you uncomfortable or push you into doing something you never want to do. It's just kind of a whisper inviting you if you're ready and willing to go. Yeah, that's um, super. Now, did you do, have you ever done any any hallucinogenic stuff, uh, Kedrick? Believe it or not, I haven't. The most okay. I've ever done is cannabis. I've always okay. been kind of a, a control freak on consciousness and I'm a lightweight. I mean, this kind of sucks to admit it, but you <laughs> put two or three drinks in me and, you know, I'm a big guy, right? I, when I was 260 pounds, I was 19% body fat. So I'm a big guy. I'm always going to be a big guy. But two drinks, three drinks at the most, and you can put me down. So <laughs> I, I can't do too many of the mind-altering things. And I can vividly hallucinate on 10 milligrams of cannabis. So I never really had that opportunity to go into other sort of entheogens or other plant medicines just because of the susceptibility of my mind. Yeah, you know, I've spoke to people, <clears throat> not necessarily, you know, the way that, 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 you, um, that your mind works, but people, you know, have these, um, you know, whether it's ayahuasca they've, they've done or, or some DMT or, or acid, and, and they come up with, with, you know, they tell you stories about being on a trip, and it sounds very much like, you know, because it, it, it's mostly because you, you know, you've you've just said you're a very big guy, but you're very soft spoken, um, and have this like unbelievable outlook on life, and it just feels like the kind of thing that somebody would have to take some substance to get to that place. But you've obviously found this place, you know, almost sober. <laughs> Absolutely, and it's interesting that this topic keeps coming up, but in a very interesting way. Because even though I have not really partaken in the entheogens too deeply, but I've got a friend who's inviting me to explore some mushrooms, which is cool. I'm curious about psilocybin. Mm. My own guides, I call them whispers, and this is where I can get a little wacky woo-woo. My own, you know, they're spirit teachers for me, sat me down one day and gave me a five-step protocol to help people who want to experience the essence of plant medicines without having to take them. 
But this protocol only works for people who have had positive experiences with DMT, with ayahuasca, with psilocybin, or some sort of plant medicine. If they've had a positive experience with it, they know what that state feels like, and I can guide them through this five-step process of reconnecting with that sacred essence so that they can go in with the right set and setting with a proper intention, have the experience that they want to have, but be completely endogenously created having this experience so that it's now under their terms, under their role, and when they're done, they can be done with it and go back to living their normal life without having to wait for you know the, the plant medicines or the chemicals to wear off, without having to go double platinum in the bathroom while they're waiting for everything to kick out, you know? Yeah. So I'm really, like, I sit there and I go, why? Why? Wait a minute. I haven't done these things. Why are you teaching me? Why are you provoking me to have people learn this experience? And they're like, you'll see. Just try it. So I'm putting together a little test group soon to see how this okay. works out. You know, I told you to do test groups. I've got one putting together. And we'll, we'll see. I'm skeptical. But we'll see. That could be interesting. It could be interesting. We'll, we'll, we'll stay tuned for some uh, for some uh, updates on that. I believe. Um, so, yeah, do you so... think? Think? Do you? Th sorry, Chris. Do you think, Kedrick, yeah. then that your kind of training and your experience has allowed you to get into those states that people have then kind of, for want of a better phrase, hitchhiked into by using psilocybin and DMT, whereas you kind of travel there freely then through your training. Absolutely. One of my favorite tools that I use is a black mirror. And when I open up a black mirror, it becomes like a portal to another reality, to a different type of dimension. And when I get really working into the black mirror, I do lose sense of connection with this, this physical world, with you know the Newtonian, Einsteinian physics that we have in our reality. I lose that sensibility, the, the shape and the size of the mirror distorts in dimensionality and the communication that comes through with beings is not audible but it's very clear in the mind it's like telepathic and it has been like full-on visual like i've been a little bit startled because there is something in the room and i can clearly see that it's there it's not human it doesn't have a human shape it's very numinous and some of the things that people have described, especially when they're on 5-MeO-DMT, connecting with interdimensional beings and beings in other realities, I'm like, yes, I've had that exact same experience that they describe in a black mirror setting, completely full-on visual, uh, not audible, but telepathic communication that I can clearly remember. And it's like some of the colors, by the way, the colors are amazing. Working with a black mirror, I cannot tell you if they're they're green or blue, yellow, but the colors are vivid and they're nothing I've ever seen in any other place before, but just bright and vivid colors. Almost makes you want to go there and, and see these colors, you know, it just makes you want to, <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard this, you know, before, I, you know, I've not, never taken any hallucinogenics at all. Um, but, you know, that's the thing you've heard, you know, the colors are so vivid and bright and, and it, it does, you know, make you kind of go, oh, I would like to see what these colors look like because it sounds fantastic. Um, but uh, yeah, that's uh, it's, yeah, so how do you, you know, can you put any like shape or, or, or name on, on the beings that you see? Is that is that something that you know, what like how would you how could you how could you describe it? 
Sure. One of my favorite ones that I work with, I have no other way to describe them other than saying that they're causal beings or causal entities. When the way that they've helped me understand their reality that they exist in is to us, time looks like it's linear. It goes from one point to the next point. It's a straight line. Cause always follows effect. To them, time exists all at once. It's everywhere. But what they experience is multiple layers of possibility and probability. And they're fascinated because our observation of a moment collapses that possibility into actuality. So to them, they live in these multiple layers of possibility where we live in a single layer of actuality. And to them, a moment is an actual living being. Like for us, like we would see, I don't know, a jellyfish, for example. Mm. To them, a moment is like a jellyfish that it lives for that time frame that we would experience and it gives birth to the next moment, which gives birth to the next moment. And so they live, see these moments as actual living beings with a purpose and a function that they fulfill and they procreate. It's, and I'm like, I, I, their concepts and what they've told, told me about time has just blown my mind. And so I call them causal beings because I have no other way of experiencing it. Like they experience time the way we experience space and vice versa. It's really weird. Okay. Yeah. That's a uh, kind of mind blowing. Like, I, I, you know, when you're sitting, you know, you know, you're, you, you, you're just kind of sit, I'm sitting here going, okay, and then what happens? And then what happens? Like, and then what happens? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's just like, whoa. <laughs> um, yeah, that's uh, super interesting. Um, the, the one thing that I find fascinating is, you know, the, the, is the sort of space that human beings live in. So we live in, you know, this reality, but, you know, like, you know, I, you know, when you think about dreams, like I had a weird dream last night and then you just, you start to go, hey, what's, you know, what is that? What is a dream? What, what What's happening when, because, you know, this, this thing was happening in real time. Like I was living it there. And then you wake up and go, what the fuck? I'm in bed. What, you know, but it's a weird thing. Like, what's the, you know, the mind is um, such a powerful thing um, that, you know, I don't think we can, uh, or maybe you can understand your own mind, but, I, you know, I, I don't know what's going on in my crazy head. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just so fascinating when, when you speak to, because I think we, you know, we speak to people, um, you know, and I don't like to—I don't like to use the word normal. But you know, we speak to normal people all day. Like, you know, mm -hmm. I speak to somebody in the store and they say, you know, how's your mum getting on? How's your gran? Is she fine? You know, how's work? But you know, they're just people who go home, you know, watch soap operas on TV, go to bed, and get up and do the same thing again. And then you speak to people like you, who just completely make you question reality. You know, it's like <laughs> you have to, yeah, have, I feel like I have to go and ask myself some questions now tonight. <laughs> Um, I'm already, I'm already, I'm already, I'm already questioning, uh, questioning life. Um, it's so, so interesting. Um, so, you know, I know we don't have, we don't have a huge amount of time, so I'm gonna have to jump around a little, a, a little bit here, um, Kedrick. So, so when the, the ghost hunting stuff, mm -hmm. um, what, what? So, are you, are you, you're teaching people how to? Did you say protect themselves when they're ghost hunting? Exactly. Okay. So 
how do you protect yourself when you're ghost hunting? The the main principle that I work with for any sort of the paranormal problems is a pr uh, the principle that similarities attract and perpetuate. Meaning whatever frame of mind that you're in, whatever emotional state you're in, is what you'll draw to you. So if you go into a location that's haunted you, and you believe that it's fully haunted and that there are some sort of entities there, you are already primed and open to the fact that you're going to encounter something because your mind is now set, you know, the whole mm -hmm. set and setting, you're set that there's something there. But if you fully believe that it's malevolent and that it's harmful and that you're in danger, you're going to be opening yourself up to that. You're going to be transmitting this fear energy, this vulnerability energy, because every emotion has an energy. And for our skeptics out there, and I love it, the work of Hammerov and Penrose has actually shown us that the microtubules of the neurons throughout all of our body, all the nerve cells, actually have virtual energy that is tuned by our thoughts and our emotions. So even the energy that we are outputting is created by our emotional state and our thoughtful state. Now imagine that there are beings out there, entities, that they're not evil, it's just what they subsist on. So mm -hmm. if you have a fear-based entity, it's going to come around to you, poke you with some fear energy. So now you're going, what was that? What was that? You're generating fear as an energy that it can feed off of. And it goes, oh, finally. So it's eating off of you. Mm. So what happens is I teach people that if you're going into these places, knowing that there could be some sort of fear eating type entity, I first teach them how to discern what are their thoughts and emotions versus what may be externally derived. So that when they encounter that externally derived, they have a few things they can do. The first thing I tell anybody to do, if you were feeling that something is trying to provoke you with fear, with anger, with that creepy, oh my God, what is this feeling? Is to actually laugh at it. Believe it or not, laughing will create this type of energy that repels a fear-based being or an anger-based being or any sort of negative entity, you're going to laugh at it. It's going to be like, what are you doing to me? The next stage that you can do is, let's say you're in a haunted place, you're in a haunted location, you're feeling that fear creeping up on you. You're feeling that cold spot of something draining your energy. This very, Cold spots are very real. There's something pulling energy away from you. Mm -hmm. So you're feeling that coldness and maybe you see a shadow move or some sort of a dark form. Our first response as a human being is to go, ah, and run, which is what you see on the TV shows, right? Or to freak out. The thing I'm training ghost hunters to do and paranormal investigators to do is to feel that feeling of fear, be aware of it, look at that shadow entity in the room, that dark entity, and then go, whoa, you're real? That's amazing. How cool is that? Because if you have that sense of awe and wonder in that moment, you are tapping into the reality that there is something there, but you are not buying into that fear provocation that it could be trying to use to attack you and draw energy off of you. Your sense of awe and wonder actually becomes like a shield like a protective barrier so that you can acknowledge the paranormal experience happening, but you are not being affected by it in a negative way. And so this awe and wonder is just an amazing tool for anybody, not just paranormal investigators, but anybody to have. Like if you're at home late at night watching TV and suddenly 
something moves on the other side of the room and you're feeling like, oh, what is this? You can go, whoa, you just knocked that book off the table? I dare you to go do another book. Knock that off. And so if it's something trying to mess with you and you're sitting there with a sense of awe and wonder going, wow, that's great. It can't mess with you anymore. But mm-hmm. if it is something more positive, like, you know, like a playful child or something, it might get off on that and go, okay, cool. Let's knock another one off. And then you know that you're actually in the presence of something that's not harmful, but that you can actually peacefully and happily coexist with. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. That, that, that is interesting. I was just going to say yeah, that because... Sorry, Alex. No, I was going to say, you know, when we were kids, um, my gran and granddad had uh, actually just around the corner from where I stay now in their big old house. And that house was 100% haunted. 100%. Um and you know, you, you know, you're talking about cold spots there, but you know, you you, you know, I can remember being a, a kid and you know being in a room, and there was a noticeable drop in the temperature, and then it you you were aware that something, you know, and I think people have said before that you know kids are a little bit more aware to this stuff than maybe adults, <clears throat> but um, yeah, you, you would be aware that something had changed in the room, like there was something was there, one hundred percent, but. My gran was, you know, she's one of those, uh, one of those people where, you know, her bed in would be perfectly flat, perfectly flat, and then when she would be in the house on her own, or you know, I was in the house with her, whatever, uh, you know, she would go back upstairs within half an hour of making a bed, and somebody had sat on the bed, that somebody had sat on the bed, it was a perfect like somebody had sat on it, but my gran used to shout at the ghost, she used to shout, say, "Bloody sick of you doing that." <laughs> and but there was never any nothing bad ever happened. It's interesting now that you say that. You go, oh, that's quite you know, she just uh as this, you know, crazy old Scottish woman would do, um yeah. shout shouted at the ghost. <laughs> yeah. I was I was gonna say very, very similar because as Chris knows, I grew up in Brodick Castle. Um, a castle over on the Isle of Arran. Uh, what I'm not rich by any stretch of the imagination. My grandparents were the custodians for our for the National Trust, the charity that owns the castle. So they lived in the staff flats at the top, and like all castles, there was it was haunted by a, a ghost called the Grey Lady. And similar to Chris, I used to remember seeing her. And again, on the peripheries you know, on the, the outside edge of your vision. And again, my grandpa used to laugh about it when he used to do his night watch duties. I used to go with him. Um, and it used to be really cool because you would go through the old banqueting hall and they had, uh, it's quite famous, but along one of the walls, there's like 400 heads of stags that have been shot. So you got all the eyes on the wall and they kind of follow you. And then something would rattle and my grandpa would be like, ah, away you go, you silly old bism. Um, to, to the grey lady because she was causing mischief and he used to kind of dismiss it. And he used to, and I, when I was little, you would be a little bit scared because you're like, oh, ghost, you've, you've seen the stories, you've heard that, you know, read the books. And then you realize, as my grandpa used to, oh, just ignore her, she'll go away. She's just trying to, she's trying to get to you, just ignore her or tell her to go away and she'll, you'll be fine. There'll be no harm will come to you. Um, so it's interesting that, as Chris has said, his gran used to do it. And then, you know, you yourself there, Kedrick, are saying that's actually a, a defense, whether, you know, learned or, or by, you know, happenstance or by practice or exposure that, maybe we start to lose in the modern world. Yep, you're exactly right. Because that's another thing I teach in in the defense classes mm-hmm. is how to set those boundaries. Like saying, ah, don't mess with me. We're not here, but you can peacefully coexist here. Just like what you were describing. It's like, oh, you're just messing with me again. That's fine. That's your thing. Go and do it. So I, I love it that you have 
th those examples of healthy mm. ways of dealing with the paranormal. It's yeah. just like, yeah, it's here, it's normal, but just come on, cut it out. Stop messing with me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I remember being on holiday once uh, with a friend when we were younger, and I, you know, woke up in the middle of the night, and um, there was something standing over my friend's bed. Now, you know, I'd woken up. Some people may say you're dreaming or whatever, but you know, when you wake up and you look and you go, something's standing over my friend's bed, and then as I stared, it slowly walked back into the curtains and then just disappeared. But I sat there for ages staring, just going. Is this real? And it, you know, I would say, hundred percent, there was something there, like oh, one hundred percent. So yeah, there's a couple of instances, um, you know, that, that I've had. Uh, where you go, something's. And if you, you know, this this might be a very childish way to look at it, but you go, if you think about all the people on Earth right now, like seven and a half billion, eight billion, you know, if you think about all the people that have ever lived through all of history you think well where does everybody go like there has to be some you know if, if you know as we're saying if everybody's energy then where does the energy go there has to be some thing that happens like it would make sense in some capacity um, exactly it's not yeah. childish at all that makes absolute sense uh, sometimes parts of it linger in these places like you were describing uh, sometimes there are other entities here because there's more than seven and a half to eight billion sapient creatures on this planet you know mm. there's a lot of energetic ones that don't have bodies the spirits but there is a, a vast for want of a better word spirit world afterlife that is filled with billions of people I am a believer in reincarnation in a, in a different way and sometimes souls don't quite always make it through. You know, it's like when we try to reach out to a loved one that we just can't seem to connect with on the other side. Sometimes they didn't mm -hmm. quite make it through. Or maybe they're going through another transition process. There's a lot of variables on there. Believe it or not, it gets pretty complex when we get into some of the details of what's on the other side. But yeah, you're absolutely right. There is a place for all of that to go. And some yeah. of it's still here. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's... Yeah, yeah, it's one of the things. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if Ali has ever been to the. Have you been to the, the Edinburgh Dungeons, Ali? And the actual like attraction. Yeah. No, I've not been to the Edinburgh yeah, one. Neither I've been have to I. So, I've been to Mary King's Close, but not okay, to the so, dungeons. So you know, in Scotland, you know, in Edinburgh, um, it's uh, you know the Edinburgh Dungeon Walks is something that's that's really popular with tourists and you know and locals. Uh, and it's something, you know, I've read a lot of stories of a lot of weird things happening um, yeah. where, you know, yeah. there's parts where plague victims were buried and, you know, all sorts of things. And I, I just refuse to go. I don't want to mess <laughs> with something that I, I, well, you know, I don't understand. Yeah, I went to I went to Mary King's Close, which is the old just Kedrick. It's the old tenements, the old closes that used to exist in Edinburgh's old town. And over the decades and centuries, they built on top of it. So it's where the Royal Mile is now. There's about four or five layers underneath it. That's just the old streets. And for parts of it were blocked up. They put all the poor down there that were plague victims and, and just basically essentially quarantined them until they died off. Um, and there's a very famous room which is known as the the corn doll room and there's a little corn doll that a girl wove back in the 1600s and it sits on a, a little alcove in the wall and the girl reputedly died in that room 
Mm-hmm. And as you go down there, obviously the 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 host that's taking you down there obviously builds it up over time and builds up, and it's very atmospheric because you are in you know sixteenth century tunnels, you know five foot tall. I mean, I'm six foot three. I'm kind of hunched down, walking through, and the guys talking and setting the thing up. And he did say there's a point where he says, you know, this room that we're going into is the most famous on the whole walk. It's where the corn doll room is. People that are sensitive to spirits always get a really strong feeling as they step through the threshold, uh, you know, and, and really kind of built it up. And then he said, the group I was with, and he said, and if you want to, you can now go in and explore the room and see what you feel. And there was a person on the tour who was partially sighted and they had a guide dog with them, like an assistance dog. And the person went, walk on. And the dog just sat down. And at that point, even I was like, whoa. Like, I just, you know, that tingle that goes up the back and across the scalp, because I'm thinking that's a, a highly trained assistance dog. And his owner said, walk on. And the dog's going, nope, <laughs> don't. I just sat and refused to cross the threshold into that room. And I yeah. swear not one of us went in. Because, guys, is anyone going to be like, nah, no, <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Scooby-Doo's not going in there. We're not going in either. Like, we are <laughs> we, we're tapping out at this point. We are not stepping over that threshold. And no one went into the room, be, all because uh, that dog. That's interesting. And you're like, you imagine, you know, that dog, they talk about animals being sensitive to earthquakes and, you know, so much other things. It was just the fact that it was a trained assistance dog and it literally was stood on all fours. And as soon as the owner said, walk on, it just sat down and looked at them as if to say, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> There's no way I'm going in that room. And I, genuinely, the, the, the chill that went up my spine and across my skin, even retelling it, I get a little bit of a tingle. But yeah. there was de- there's definitely something in that room. If you ever get a chance to go in it, there's definitely something in that room. Oh, I definitely will. I've been on the Royal Mile once back in 1990, but I didn't realize you could go under the Royal Mile. So that is now on my list of things to do. Absolutely, I want to see that place. I definitely want to go to the Doll Room. I would love that experience. And what you were describing, that tingle that comes up your back and goes up to the top of your head, I call that the goosebump rush. And when I'm teaching seances or any sort of investigation, I tell people to trust the goosebump rush. Like if you get what seems to be a message and you want to say it, and just as you're about ready to say it, you get that goosebump rush, that's when you blurt it out because Mm. that is your intuition kicking in. That's the deepest part of your visceral nervous system firing all of those neurons going, I have information here, this is real, feel it, this is me. And so when you got that goosebump rush when the dog sat down, that was your intuition kicking in going, yep, there's something in here. I need to pay attention to this. Absolutely. That's awesome. I'm going you, there. Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Is this, do, you, do you think this is something that, you know, people have lost over, you know, the years, centuries um, to, to not trust this thing? You, you know, if you can't see it, it's not real kind of thing. I, I don't think it's lost over the years and centuries. I think it's lost over the lifetimes. When we're kids, we have it. I think it's a natural ability for everybody. But when we tell our parents, because our parents were growing up this way, we tell our parents about it. They're like, oh, stop making up stories. You're just playing with an imaginary friend. Oh, I don't want to hear any more of this kind of nonsense. Or they're genuinely afraid. And so kids get shut down for it. They're, they want to belong. They want to fit in with their parents. They don't want to get in trouble. So we just tune it out. We turn it off. This goes back to what I talk about the veil. 
in the in these circles we hear about people saying like at midnight the veil between worlds is thinnest or at 3 a.m the veil between worlds is thinnest in this cemetery the veil is thinnest in that location in the dungeon the veil is and i'm like no 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 there is no veil there never was a veil ever was never been a veil what we use as a metaphor of the veil is allowing our mind to tune in or out for what's already already around us so if you go in believing that a place is haunted and that you're going to have a haunted experience you're tuning in your mind you've crossed the veil already when we do seance and we set set and setting we set sacred space around us we call in the beings we're not dropping the veil we're tuning our minds to be open to receive and so when you went down into the corn room almost ready to go to the corn doll room and you felt that goosebump rush it wasn't that you were crossing a veil your mind was opening to the possibility and becoming aware and that's what we lost as kids we had that as kids but over the years when we get older we're starting to recover it more and more people are watching the paranormal shows tuning into shows like this realizing that the paranormal is perfectly normal the supernatural is completely natural and our ability to perceive and interact with it is a natural talent we all have we just need to reclaim it own it and go yep this is real and this is all around me has been all the time mm. yeah yeah like i say it's it's um it's certainly an interesting topic um you know i you know i can remember you know as i was saying earlier you know if you look at uh something i thought of when i was younger you know just looking at um you know i, I can remember, it must have been a cemetery that was close um you know there's quite a lot of old graves and it was just looking at it you know and like i was saying you're looking at it going you know all these people this is one little graveyard in one little part of scotland you think you know these people were at that time you know um you know certainly in this part of the world were all, all buried you know nobody was cremated at that point uh and you just think well where does you know there's a lot of there's a lot of dead bodies Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot of skeletons, and and if you know, if you, if you believe in you know uh, a soul, or you know, or, or you know, or or you know, like I say, energy. I, you know, I'm a believer in energy. Um, um, you know that that must go someplace. I, I thought that when I was younger, and you know, still think that now. You know, to me, you know, um, you know, if, if you know, if we, you know, if you want to believe, um, you know, the Big Bang was real. To go to go to go to go way back uh, if you want you know the big bang was real and it was energy then everything that came after that has to be energy because it you know that's what there was so you know human beings would always have you know you do get it's interesting uh, you know just talking about this there's a tree now this sounds crazy and i've said this to people before and they look at me like i'm crazy there's a tree that i run past um most Saturdays when I go for a little run in uh, the hills, uh, the Lomond Hills near us, uh, and I think I've posted a picture on, you know, Facebook and Instagram before. And there's something about this tree that just freaks me out. There's something about it that I don't, there's something doesn't, it just doesn't add up to me. And I, I, I don't know what it is. Every time I come past it, especially when it gets to, you know, nighttime, you know, if it's going dark, because quite often I'll go out for a sunset run, you know, watch the sunset and then I have to run past it again. You know, and it'll be a nice little pace. And then once I get near this tree, I just pick the pace up ever so slightly because I don't, there's something <laughs> about this tree that gives me a bad vibe. And I just don't know what it is. And, and you know, to, you know, to most people, they would think, shut the fuck up, you idiot. It's a tree. <laughs> but there's something about it that just, 
it makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable, and I don't know. I don't know why. I, I, I you know, um, it's strange. So here's what I'd invite you to do: is the next time you go past that tree, stop. Let yourself tune into that creepy feeling that you get, that unnerving feeling, just mm. for a little bit to tap into it, to be open to that feeling coming on, and then be aware of any sort of imp visual impressions. You might not actually see it, but like if you were to imagine holding a lemon right now, you can imagine what it looks like, the peel of it, the texture of it, you know, the waxy feel of the lemon, the, the color, even though you're not really seeing it. The same kind of thing when you're tuning into that feeling with a tree, if you get a visual impression, like a color or a texture, just be aware of that one. Or if you get the idea of a word or any emotion that comes up, like a secondary or third emotion that comes with it, just mm. to be aware. And then when you get that impression, those feelings or any sort of information, just acknowledge it. Say, cool, I get it, I understand, thank you. And actually have a moment of gratitude for the extra information that you got built off of that feeling and then go for your run and don't think about it anymore just kind of let that be a tune in because it might give you some impression on why that tree mm -hmm. is giving you the creep out feeling and it could lead you to the next steps of what you need to do about it mm, interesting i may try that um <laughs> i'll have to work up to it i'll have to i'll have to talk myself to it and be be brave uh, but yeah, yeah, you know, it makes sense. Um, um, but yeah, you know, so I know, you know, I know we're, we're, we're moving along with time here. So I, I want to ask you about your, um, your, your time in Scotland, your little hitchhiking uh, adventure in Scotland, because it sounds cool. Well, that's one thing I do want to mention real quick, because I, I did spend quite a bit of time, a couple of weeks in the Highlands. And what you were describing with the tree and what you guys were talking about, the castles and locations, absolutely. I mean, on the Isle of Skye, you know, staying at a hostel mm -hmm. and then just kind of walking through the forest. Oh, yeah, those woods have something in there. Putting my hand into a stream, just, you know, felt this weird impression to put my hand into the stream. And I felt another hand, a cold hand, go around my hand. I didn't feel like it was going to pull me in or anything, but it was more just like an acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. Walking through a cemetery in the highlands man you know some of the, the back part of the cemetery where all the graves are sunken in and it's just like really walk the ground feels spongy like oh my god i don't want to be walking here in case i fall in because it just felt weird the entities and the spirits and the ghosts in those places are just massively full so yeah i can verify from personal experience scotland's massively haunted everywhere yeah sky I, funnily enough i was watching um you know, there's, there's a, I think it was on the adventure show. There's, you know, there's a, a little show on a Sunday morning, um, you know, breakfast time, and there was a, no, I, I cannot remember the name of the bloody island, but there's a, a loch and there's a little island in the middle, and there's a grave of uh, a Viking, a Viking, uh, and you know, I, I, I can't remember who, I think he was, you know, some kind of. You know, you know, whatever it would be, nobility, and it, you know, his wife was buried there because they were in Scotland, and and they, you know, they buried them on, um, on this little island, and it was one of those things where you know you can you can swim over. I was like, oh, fuck, I need to swim over and check that. It just seems cool. Um, you know, there's you know these Viking graves on these tiny little islands in Scotland seems super cool. So I'll have to remember the name of that and, and go check it out. But um, but yeah, you you're talking about Sky Isle, the Isle of Sky is uh staggering and absolutely I, I try to get up once a year to climb some hills um it's just a unbelievably cool place so 
Um, yeah, and you know, I need to check out. Now, there is quite a lot of um, Ali, you'll know this better than me, probably. There is quite a lot of Viking ruins on, on these islands, isn't there? There's certainly a lot of, yeah, yeah, pagan and Neolithic and, and Norse. Like where I'm from in Arran, um, on Macquarie Moor, there's a, a, a Neolithic or maybe even Paleolithic um, standing stone circle. Mm. Um, it's out in the middle of nowhere. The sign says it's a mile. If it's a mile, I'm, I'm you know, five foot two and 19 stone. You know what I mean? It's it's definitely not a mile, but it's, it's a gorgeous setting. And there is, again, I found, I went there, the, the last time I went there, I was probably maybe 10 or 11 and hanging up on a fence near the, the standing stones, I found a grass hand-woven pentagram that my grandparents let me pick up and they're like, yeah, you can take that because they told me it was a symbol of protection. I don't know if that's true or not, but it was a, a hand-woven, like made out of the grass from within the standing circle uh, pentagram. And I had it above my bed until I was probably probably about 18 years old when I moved out my parents' house and then it just disappeared over the years. But I had it for six or seven years, this dried grass pentagram that came from within Macquarie Moor Standing Stones. That's amazing. That'd be cool and to have. You're right about the runes. I, it's not Uist, but one of the aisles around Uist. I remember hearing of an old burial mound that has since been cleared out but all of the markings on the inside of the wall are runes written by the Norse people that came through here. And they don't say anything more profound than Sven was here. It was basically mm. all it is. It's just graffiti. Mm. <laughs> just people who came and probably took one of the grave goods and then carved some runes on the wall and just left it as their marker that they were here to, to snag something out of the grave mound. <laughs> mm. Yes. Um, there's, there's still, the thing is, I love the Isle of Skye. Um, you know, I don't have enough time to to go. To, you know, I'd love to go visit all the islands and and explore, do some running and and swimming in some in locks and uh, some of the little pools. I just haven't had time yet. Uh, you know, I will. You know, if anything, the last year told me that you know take take more opportunity to do these cool things that you want to because um, you know the time. You know, anything can happen at any point really. So I will definitely visit another couple of islands. Um, this year because there's so many things, cool things to see. Uh, well, I guess cool to some people, cool to us. Uh, to other people, you know, they probably think it's just, oh, there's some stones, cool. I don't, you yeah. know what I mean? But um, there's so many cool things to see. So, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, one one thing one thing that I, I, I wanted to ask you, um, uh, Kedrick, was why 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 is it of all the sort of um, you know, the, through all you know of, of all the ages in history. You know, if you you think about any of the you know the periods we can think about, that people seem to be fascinated with uh, Vikings you know, or, or Norse culture. You know, why why what is it about it? Do you think that that makes people so interested? There's a, a few different reasons for that one. There has been a couple of revivals of the Norse culture over the past years. You know, there's the Wagnerian Society. Back in uh, early 1900s, you know, uh, Wagner did the whole ring cycle. There's They really tapped into the old Norse culture back then and really got into the Viking stuff. Then there was the modern rebirth of Osetru, which is the old Norse paganism that we found in Iceland and in the U.S. and other places back in the 70s, all about the same time. There's been these revivals. Ultimately, what I think it is 
is the Norse culture through the Vikings. By the way, Viking was just like a part-time summer job. It wasn't actually a people. Mm. But during the time of the Vikings, sure, there was some raiding going on and some sort of conquering. But for the most part, a lot of the, the Norse culture was a subtle influence over a lot of the other major cultures. For example, the reason why the UK, from what I understand, was able to help unify into a solid kingdom was because the Saxons kept everybody else busy so that the other kingdoms could kind of unify. Uh, in uh, Normandy, France, that was a Norse colony. You know, they settled there. They turned all of France into a Thorkult for a short time. Then Charlemagne came in and they just couldn't get rid of the Norse influence. Uh, the, you know, Dublin is an old Viking town. There's just everywhere. The Norse have had some sort of a subtle influence that created governments. It created, you know, really a lot of the countries that are out there. Even in Spain, we have the Visigoths and the Vandals that were a founding part of Spain. All the way out to Russia, the, there was a tribe of Swedes called the Rus who the settled along the right. Volga River. And the Rus gave rise to Russia. And because we have this subtle undertones of Norse culture that have influenced so much of the world, I think every now and then it just kind of bubbles up and people go, ooh, what is this? And then we tend to romanticize it and it gets romanticized in a very highly fictional way, which is like what we see on the Vikings TV show. I, mm. I can't stand watching that just because it's just so outrageous. <laughs> but I think people just romanticize that subtle influence. Yeah, I have to say, I have to say, uh, <laughs> I don't watch any television. I've never watched any. You know, Ali would, Ali would tell you this. You know, I haven't watched any television series ever. I watched five minutes of something and went, nope, don't like it. The only thing I've ever watched from episode one to the very last episode was Vikings. I just loved it. <laughs> I thought it was amazing. Um, it's the only thing I've ever watched. Only thing. Um, so. Yeah, thank you for ruining it for me. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's something you know. Everybody has these uh, images, you know. You know, you know. The, um, I guess, I guess, it, people concentrate on like the like you're saying that you know the the raiding part of it, um, where you know the, you, they have these images of you know the long boats and stuff, um, and that's the the. the you know the image that people have, but there's obviously a lot more um, surrounding the culture um, than just that. You know, people think about you know Thorn and Odin and all. You know, but you know there's obviously a lot of it misunderstood or just you know mistold. I guess um, you know what we would be told. Um, but yeah, the same thing happens in Scotland, I guess. But you know, people think about William Wallace and you know they think about Braveheart. Yeah, hey, that's. <laughs> That's not really not what right. happened. Um, <laughs> Lightning bolts out of his ass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spo spoiler alert: Braveheart is not a documentary. Are you joking? <laughs> uh, I, I'm just thinking. No, I just I can't remember this. Who was the Andrew? Who was the the, the you know William Wallace's right hand man, legitimate right hand man, who was actually the the, the kind of the strategist? Uh, Andrew, Andrew. I was going to say Martin, but it's not a uh, fairly. Something like that, yeah. Like you know, everybody talks about William Wallace, but they forget about the guy who kind of did all the strategy stuff. He was actually the William Wallace is more kind of the spokesperson. Um, 
Andrew Fitzmaith. Uh, it's going to annoy me now. I can't remember. Marv a poem about him. I'll find it. Uh, yeah, so you know, if people people think about William Wallace as being you know the the great Scottish hero, um, you know, but the, the, you know he actually had somebody else who was kind of as important, possibly more important, and, and they just forget about that part because one part of it has been romanticised. Um, you know, like you're saying the same with you know Norse culture and, uh, and the Vikings. Um, but yeah, it's it's you know something that I'm super interested in. I like the idea. I'm going to have to go and read. In fact, is there any any books you would you would recommend to to read? Uh, yeah, for the Norse stuff, I always recommend the poetic and the prose eddas. Those are the original books of the lore and the mythology written by the Norse. Now, granted, it was by Christian bishops that wrote them down. But it's still the oldest text that we have of that one. And I think that's a great place to start. And then you can get into some of the other more modern interpretations of it and descriptions of it. But I always recommend the Eddas. Okay, cool. We'll, uh, I'll, I'll remember that and uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have a look at that. That seems super, super interesting to read. Um, so, yeah, I think we should uh, we should wrap up. Yeah, we'll start with like We could have... Definitely. We could have spoke to you for hours. We'd love to, if you have the opportunity and time, we'd maybe look back in a few months and, and have you back on to do a bit more of a deep dive into this, Kedrick, because it's been super interesting. Um, I love it. You guys you, are awesome, yeah, awesome. So let's do that. Awesome. Cool. If just before you do, just leave, we always get guests. So if you want to throw out any social media or internet places where people can find out more about you, your work, and we'll tag this in the show notes and, and tag it in the video and the release when we send this out as well. Sure. When we're ever talking about books, I can't be negligent to not recommend my own, Runes for Transformation, where we talk about more of the practical ways of using runes. Uh, then, of course, I have my website, kedrick.com, where you can find my paranormal work, my work for pagan men, and the shadow work and all the kind of stuff that I do there, and the Norse and the runes and the rune music that I create. And just look for my name on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and you'll find everything I do. And I'm always open for questions, comments, or thoughts. So don't hesitate to send me a message in any of those places. I love it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we will. We know that time is uh, precious, and you've got a, a meeting to get to, Kedrick. So I just want to say again, thank you, one, for jumping in, two, for having such an awesome, interesting episode. Um, and as I say, we'd definitely love to do it again and, and get another another probably hour, hour and a half chat with you, no issues whatsoever. We could listen to you talk all day. But I think with that, let's call episode 61 of the Silly Goose Gang podcast with Kedrick Olsen done and dusted. Thank you very much, Kedrick. Thank you, man. You guys are awesome. Silly Goose Gang Podcast.